My name's Tommy. I'm associate minister here and have the opportunity to share with you a little bit today as we continue our series together called Defy. We've been in that for a few weeks together and if you it's your first time here, don't worry, you can catch up. You will be able to figure out what we're talking about. Um, but if you've been around for this series, then you know we've been talking about some things that as we identify together with Jesus, as we come alongside and look at his life and work through uh, the life of Jesus, we see some things that we might um, find ourselves embracing that we need to defy. We've looked through that and worked through that. If you've missed it, it's been a good series. It's been a hard series, but it's been a good series. Uh, you can catch up to that online if you need to. We're going to continue in that by talking uh, about a scripture in Matthew chapter 27. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there to Matthew chapter 27. If you don't, there are some uh, friends coming down right now who have Bibles in their hands. They would love to pass one of those to you. Just uh, get their attention. They'll send you a Bible. If you don't own your own Bible, you're welcome to own the one that we're handing you. Take it home with you. We'd love to share God's word with you. And so feel free to take that with you. If, as you're turning to Matthew 27, if you want to sneak back to Matthew chapter 21 um, and look at the triumphal entry, we'll spend some time there a little bit. Uh, maybe you can read that when uh, you get distracted as I start talking because it's good stuff there. Um, so Matthew 27, and then if you uh, get bored, read Matthew 21. Um, that'll be some other stuff we talk about there. Uh, as those Bibles are getting to you and you're getting all settled, let me tell you a little bit about if you noticed the hub as you walked in, that's this foyer space over here. That what was a nice-ish looking area now is filled and looks really good. It's got a lot of good stuff in there, some um, apparel and First Christian Church stuff. It has some resources that are loaded in there, uh, you'll find some information about some various things in there. Information in particular about uh, regeneration recovery is one of the things we want you to find that information this week. And here's why. We've been talking about this program that we do together for some time. Regeneration recovery is a 12-step recovery program that we look at as a, a very important discipleship tool in the life of our church. And we've been doing this as a pilot program for a while, but we also want to invite uh, you now to be a part of a public launch for that. I've been doing the pilot program and I couldn't emphasize to you enough that my participation in Regeneration Recovery has been a monumental growth point for me in my walk with Jesus. And I have been a follower of Jesus for some time, but I would point to this as just a, uh, a place where I would build a monument or an Ebenezer, if I want to use a Bible word, and say this was a big deal in my walk with Jesus. And so um, if you're interested in that, you want to hear more of my story, feel free to grab me, talk to me, uh, or stop by the hub and say, tell me a little bit more about that. If you have some friends that are interested in Regeneration Recovery, there are some cards, some invitations there that you can grab and use those as a way to invite your friends along with you uh, to Regeneration Recovery. And speaking of invitations, uh, we opened our worship service today with a, a humorous look at Easter being on April Fool's, but it is, in all seriousness, a good time to invite someone to, because it is uh, one of those days where I think it's probably the best day for us to worship together as a church. We worship resurrection on that day where Jesus has really done the thing that we worship him for, beating and defeating the grave. And that has value for us. And so, oh, what a great day for us to worship. And as if it weren't powerful enough for us, one of the things that's true about your friends is that they're probably most likely to say yes 
when you invite them for Easter. They've heard about Easter a little bit, maybe haven't said yes to Jesus. Would you use this opportunity that we have this week to invite your friends along with you to take part in Easter worship because they're going to get to hear the gospel. And when they hear the gospel, the opportunity is there for their life to be changed. And so we we believe that it's going to be um, an important moment for that. And there are some invitation cards as well in the hub that you can use. And feel free to grab those, the First Christian Church cards that will give information. And you can use that as a way to invite your friends. But it is an important week for us in uh, in the the worship of our church. And so we hope that you'll be involved in that and you'll be engaged in inviting your friends. So uh, one more thing I want to tell you, and then we'll jump into our text today. I want to talk about the kids who are up on stage. What a great, I love when we get to see our kids up on stage. It's one of those moments where you think, oh yeah, there's children here. Um, And they're often downstairs and you just don't see it and they make all their noise down there and you don't see it. And then they come up here and you're like, oh, yes, Um, the oh, yes moment today would be um, we do have a lot of children downstairs and that number continues to grow, which praise God, it continues to grow. We love uh, children uh, getting to hear about Jesus. And so as that number continues to grow, what we have a need for is we have a need for our volunteer base to continue to grow along with those children. And so we would ask you today and just Uh, give you an invitation to please come alongside what we're doing downstairs with our children and in that ministry. If you can help in some way with the children's ministry, would you volunteer today? You can put that on your response card that's in your seat back. You could stop by the hub. Um, You could find someone with a lanyard. Really, if you just kind of look at us the right way, we're going to think you volunteered. So (laughs) we... We would love for you to jump on board if you can. That'd be great. Uh, we're, we're even starting next week another class because of the amount of kids. So the preschool class, which has been fours and fives all together, is going to become um, four and a five-year-old separately. And so we really do have a need for you, so we'd love for your help in that. So as we uh, dive in today... We talked about uh, this being uh, Palm Sunday. Chris mentioned that already. Uh, I told you that's where Matthew 21 is. Our text for today is in Matthew 27. So we're going to read that before we jump in. Um, and, uh, and so we'll fall in not quite at the uh, triumphal entry passage, but this is after Jesus has been uh, betrayed by one of his disciples. This is after uh, he has already been turned over to the authorities. And so we jump in right there in chapter 27. Let's read beginning of verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. 
and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray together. God, our desire as we look into your word is that you would use your word to be living in our lives, to shape us and form us. We have decided to look intently at your scripture and we open our hearts and our ears to hear from you. So we invite you to be present, to teach us from the authority of Scripture. So we set ourselves below it, asking for you to shape our lives because of what we see and you reveal to us today. We pray that through Jesus. Amen. So it's um, spring break week. I don't know if you know. I mean, all the teenagers know that. Um, Spring break week. And I like that our school system decides to do spring break over the Easter week because it really emphasizes that this is a a time to celebrate and to be present. And uh, so I love that. Um, But one of the temptations, I think, or at least the daydreams that I have for spring break is I daydream about a beach vacation on spring break. And those of you who are sitting here today, you're not at the beach. I see that. Uh, You're here. But maybe you've already had some friends who are headed to the beach. I um, had... Just the good fortune, I think, of living in a beach town for a period of my life. I lived in Charleston, South Carolina for about five years, right after I got married. And so we got to live there with no kids and just do whatever we wanted. You know, we didn't realize how good we had it. Um, <laughs> whew, that's not in the notes. Uh, so we go to the beach. We would go to the beach all the time. But we learned really quickly when you live in Charleston, it's a tourist town. You don't go to the beach during the summer. You just don't. Why? Because it's crazy packed. Um, it's busy. And it's hot like throughout the whole year. So you go in the off season, September, October. We would go in the off season to the beach because um, it was a whole lot less crowded. You could actually get there in a reasonable amount of time. There weren't people crowding up your streets because Charleston... South Carolina in the summer is like a nightmare. What would ordinarily take you 20 minutes to get somewhere, you're stuck in a a traffic jam for an hour and a half. And and I promise you there were times we're sitting in the car, and I tried not to curse. I think it was probably in my heart. But all these tourists who were there, I'm so frustrated. All these tourists are in my town, and I can't even get to go eat somewhere. I was so frustrated at what this was like. I don't know if you've ever been in a tourist town. Some of you may want to be like me and hide in a hole until they all go back to their homes. And then I go to the beach. Um, But if you've ever been in a tourist town, if not, you're thinking, okay, that's weird. You're a weirdo. And I am. Um, but uh, if you're not a beach person, then maybe uh, you can get, get another picture. Because what, what I want to illustrate for you in this story is I want you to, to think about Jerusalem um, because it's kind of a tourist town. I want you to think about Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. And so just sort of like Charleston, which the, the population just swells in the summer. For Jerusalem, the population exploded during Passover week. And so this is one of those uh, cities that ordinarily has about 100,000 people living in it. During Passover week, would swell up to hundreds of thousands. Most people think a million Jews came into Jerusalem for Passover week. So this is the scenario. It's Charleston in the summer. Or maybe it's not, and you think, I've never been there. But you know Green County Fairgrounds right over here, Greenville? It's like it sits empty all year long, and then for one week of the year, it's just explosion of people. And you forget what that is if you're like me. You're driving home from Walmart, and you're thinking, I'm just going to go home, normal day, and then stop on 11E. There's nowhere to go, and you're stuck. Um, and it's all these fair people that are there, and it just it swells up. And so Jerusalem is like that. There's this road. It's like maybe 11E during the fairgrounds time. 
Um, it's this road that goes in and is filled with people who are flooding this town. And so this Palm Sunday event that we've been celebrating today is this interesting time where there's this people, the group of people in Jerusalem that are the Jews. And they, I mean, we'll make fun of them a little bit and say they're kind of the Jews with their nose stuck in the, uh, up in the air a little bit. They think they've got it all figured out. And the people who are, who are way out, maybe they don't all know what all's going on. They're coming in to do their worship. There's this mixture of two different kinds of people who are there at Jerusalem. And this is what's going on. They knew that there was something happening, the, at least the people inside the city. They hear something's going on because there's commotion outside the city because Jesus is coming down the road. And as Jesus comes down the road, he brings with him a group of people that have left the city to hear what he has to say because they think this guy's got some interesting stuff to say. And they've been listening and they've been learning about this spiritual kingdom that Jesus is building. And they maybe have got a little bit of it figured out. And so they're on this road and they're saying, He's coming in. This is him, the Messiah. And so people start to join in in Matthew 21, verse 9. The crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They're shouting this uh, praise echo that comes from Psalm 118. They, They would have known it. Verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We will bless you from the house of the Lord. So they're saying Hosanna, which just means come save us now. Come save us now. Come and be our savior. Be the one who leads us to victory. Be the one who saves saves us. And so then as he's entering in and the disciple crowd of Jesus starts to mix with the city crowd, people start to kind of get interested. What's going on? What's going on? And in verse uh, 10 of chapter 21, it says, when he entered Jerusalem, this whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? I was thinking about what that might have felt like. And Green County Fairgrounds was not enough illustration for me. And so I was thinking about another time in my life where I was outside of a a place walking in in the middle of a crowd. For me, that happened to be a Clemson football game. I was out with the, if you've ever, you know, football games work this way. People go and they tailgate where they get really excited about going into the game. We'll call it excited. Um, Really excited about going to the football game for a long period of time. And then they kind of march in. This is not the day I was there. But this is maybe something what it looks like. They march into the stadium. It was about game time. And here I am, grown man, walking into this football stadium amongst another group of grown men. And all of a sudden, this group of grown men around me starts to just cheer. The game hasn't started yet, okay? They just started to cheer in the street on the way into the stadium. And I'm thinking, that's weird. And then I realize that if I don't cheer, I'm going to look like the weirdo. So... So here I am, weirdo, just join right in in the cheer on the way into the stadium. And it felt normal at the time. But here, but then I stepped back away from that and I think that it felt normal and it actually ended up being really, really um, strange. Um, that's not Clemson, by the way, um, on the screen. But um, I don't know if you've been in a situation where you're cheering uh, for a team that you're maybe not ordinarily cheering for. I am a fan of Clemson, uh, but I'm not a fan of Loyola Chicago. I'm a fan of Tennessee Volunteers. Loyola Chicago hit a last second shot and knocked our volunteers out of the tournament, right? So we don't like them, but then we find ourselves liking them somehow. Like, then I find myself last night, I'm thinking, I'm rooting for Loyola. 
Like they're the Cinderella story of the tournament, right? And, and so here you think, I shouldn't be rooting for them. And then suddenly I am. Like I find myself getting excited about their success. I don't know why. I just kind of get caught up in the emotion of the crowd, right? And I'm not the only one. These people wearing the scarves, they're buying out all this apparel. And so the, the, there's a bookstore on campus there uh, at the college where they said their sales have, have shot up 300% uh, from the last March. Um, so wouldn't you know that there are a whole lot of people that suddenly are fans of Loyola Chicago um, as they start to do really well. I was thinking about that because being in a part of a crowd makes you do something that you don't always understand. Um, I, don't, I don't understand it when I sit at a hockey game. Me at every hockey game is cheering for something I have no idea what's going on. Okay? It's me sitting in the stands cheering and all I understand is there's this little black disc and if you get it inside the net it's a point yeah Uh, so like anything else that happens I have no clue but I'll cheer uh, because everyone else around me is and if you've ever been in a crowd or a concert or a sports game maybe you're there and you're like I'm not even a fan but I'm going to cheer and so you find yourself in the energy of this crowd and it starts to influence what you do and there was this energy happening on this day where Jesus was coming into Jerusalem this crowd this surge of energy is taking place and they begin to shout these praises to Jesus and the crowd leads them in a great direction on Palm Sunday but there's another crowd that we've already read about in chapter 27 and in chapter 27, this crowd, this, it sends the other direction. And so while a crowd sometimes gets you pointed towards praising Jesus and saying Hosanna, there are other times where being involved in a crowd has you do things you think, I would never do that. And it's shouting for the crucifixion of an innocent Jesus. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But let's figure out how do we get from there on Palm Sunday to where we are in our text today. Well, the religious leaders weren't too fond of Jesus. He was not someone they were really interested in following. He threatened uh, what they thought was right. But they, they certainly couldn't go against the crowd and their love of this new teacher. And so they would plot and think, how can we get him uh, to get out of the way? And they were trying to figure that out. But before uh, we figure out what they did, because we'll see that, I want to talk um, before we leave that, that road that Jesus travels in. I want to talk about one more thing that I think is just amazing about what's going on. This is Passover time, and that's the holiday that brought everybody into Jerusalem. This is the surge of people. It's Passover. It's a Jewish holiday week where they come and they celebrate the Passover, which comes from Exodus, where God is delivering his people out of captivity from Egypt. And so there are a series of plagues that convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And one of those was this plague where um, the firstborn were killed in the middle of the night. But the Israelites were, free, were freed from that because they had taken a lamb by God's instruction, taken a lamb and put the blood of that lamb over their doorpost. And so they were passed over on that night. And so ever since then, they remembered what God had done for them in not just saving them on that night, but letting them free from their captivity in Egypt. And so it was part of something they had been doing for a long, long time in their regular worship. And they're pouring in to take part in that again. And here's the instructions about what they would do in Exodus chapter 12. Read verse 3 and then verse 6. It says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And then verse 6, And you shall keep that lamb until the fourteenth day of the month. 
when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So Jesus is entering in on this day, this tenth day of the month, this tenth day, which is Lamb Selection Day. Jesus is coming down this road into the city of Jerusalem. He happens to be entering into this gate called the Sheep Gate on that day. The Sheep Gate is where people would bring their lambs in for all of these pilgrims to select their lamb for the Passover. They're selecting the lamb that they will then hold until the 14th day. Well, they will then slaughter that and praise God for what he did in delivering them from their captivity. And all the while this is going on, on that same road, these people are announcing and selecting Jesus as their Passover lamb, not even really understanding the full implications of that just yet. And this Passover lamb idea is not something that I just came up with out of thin air. It's in 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 7. Paul writes about this. He says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus is the Passover lamb that becomes for us uh, the blood that saves us, not just of a night of a plague, but saves us from our sin. And John the Baptist knew that long before Jesus had even started his ministry. In John chapter 1, verse 36, John the Baptist declares this about Jesus. He says, behold, when he saw Jesus, behold the Lamb of God. And then we know the end of the story in Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, is where in, in heaven, Jesus is worshipped. It says, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Here's the cool thing that we have happening on this day, is that God sent his Son into Jerusalem, on the very day that people had been selecting their Passover lambs for the last 1,500 years. And the people call out that this is the one who will save us. He's coming to save us now. And they're stating something that I don't think they recognized at the time, just how prophetic that really, really was. Hold on to that thought because it's going to be important later on in our text today. So we jump into chapter 27. And we find that Jesus has already been betrayed. He has already been handed over to the authorities. Pilate's had a little one-on-one -on -one meeting with him and determined that there's not much he's seeing there that's, that's guilty. But the religious leaders had done this. They had found a way to turn Jesus over and to try and get him out of the way. I, they were somehow blinded by what Jesus really was. It was maybe their own pride. It was their system of self-righteousness. But they, were, they missed Jesus for who he was. They, they were afraid, I think, of losing something uh, that they cared about. In John chapter 11, verse 48, it speaks to this. That if we let him, Jesus, if we let him go on like this, then everyone's going to believe in him. And then the Romans are going to come and they'll take away both our place and our nation. So the Sanhedrin, these leaders, they were afraid. They were afraid that this was not going to turn out well. And so they figured out how to turn Jesus over to Pilate. They, what they ended up doing was um, modifying what they had, which was a religious problem with Jesus, and turning it into something political. They would say, he's claimed to be king. He's claimed to be a king here, and that's in opposition to Caesar. And so Pilate didn't really have to take the case. He could have let the Jews deal with this, their own thing. But he looked at it and said, okay, maybe, maybe this is something to do, because he knew Jesus was quite popular, and Pilate cared a lot about popularity. And so he looks and kind of interacts with Jesus just right before we reread Matthew 27, verse 11 through 14. And what he sees in his interaction is not only does he not find guilt, but he's pretty amazed at who he's, in, he's interacting with in Jesus. And it's still interesting then that even after that, that Pilate was still, well, let me look a little bit more into that. 
Um, And as he continues to look into it, he comes to figure out something's fishy here. This is not normal. It says in verse 18, he knew that out of envy they had delivered him, Jesus, to him. And it wasn't just that he figured out that the religious leaders were envious of Jesus. His own wife, at some point in this whole story, his own wife had come to him and said, be careful about this righteous man, Jesus. I've been troubled by these dreams that I've been having. On top of that, Pilate knew the Jews didn't like him. And so for them to come and say, hey, do this favor for us, friend, um, he could see that there was some kind of frame up taking place. So with all of that setting the scene, why in the world would Pilate then actually step in and take this case? Um, because he, he really, really wanted people to like him a lot. He really cared a lot about people approving of who he was. He wanted people's applause. Think about the custom. It says in verse 15 that he had a custom of releasing a prisoner. That's not like a normal thing. He could have done that or didn't have to. He did it, and he waited until that one week, you know, holiday week, when there are not just 100,000 but maybe a million people around to see. I will release a prisoner to you. Look at my great, gracious heart. Um, and he was wanting people to approve that who he was. He wanted people to like him. And so he's thinking... Probably pretty sharply, he's thinking, oh, they just proclaimed Jesus was like their man. And the whole city saw that just a few days ago. If I put him up there, they're going to think I am the most wonderful governor that there could possibly be. And so he steps in to this place where he's trying to earn the favor of the crowd. But there's a twist in the story. The twist in the story is that the religious leaders had been working behind the scenes to take the crowd and kind of change their opinion. It says in verse 20 that the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. They had stepped in and they had cashed in every ounce of their relationship capital. All their friendship credits, all of their favors that they had earned up and said, if you believe me, ask for Barabbas. And so then as Pilate stands before and says, which one do you want? thinking that it's going to be Jesus and he's going to get off scot-free. They say, Barabbas! And he goes, "Uh uh-oh. And Pilate says, "Uh, are you sure? And they say, yes, Barabbas, yes. He says, but he's not done anything wrong. And the crowd demands all the more for crucifixion and he realizes he's in a losing situation. It's kind of, what is plan B here? What choice is he going to make? And He's thinking at this moment, he must be thinking, how in the world can me as a judge set this innocent man free when I know Barabbas is a known criminal who's probably not just a robber, but probably also an insurrectionist who's probably maybe even killed one of the Romans. And so how could I set this man free? But they're asking, uh, they're asking for the criminal to be set free and the innocent man to be crucified. Well, I'll tell you how he really could. Because he really wanted them to applaud him. And he really wanted that crowd to say, we like you. And he wanted to go along with what they were asking for. I don't know if you've been there before. I'm in youth ministry and have been doing youth ministry with teenagers for 15 years full time now. And, um, And one thing I can tell you about youth ministry is that when you get a group of high school boys together, uh, we don't do wise things. Um, Sorry to admit that. We don't. But there was, I was in a, a, a Buffalo Wild Wings with a group of high school boys once. And um, they, just one or two of them just whispered over at me. 
I bet you can't eat the hottest hot wings. And, and I thought, no, no, I'm not going to do that. You're crazy. And I don't know how the situation happened on that day, but the way I remember it, the way I imagine it, was it went from one or two boys to the entire restaurant chanting, eat the hot wings, you can do it. The whole restaurant's on their feet, and here I am, and I tell them, order the hot wings. And I order the hot wings, and I proceed to then eat the hottest hot wings you could order. And I'll tell you what, it was only about uh, 30 seconds. And I realized I had made a grave error. This was, this was a really, really bad mistake, but I couldn't show it on my face, right? Because I wanted them to keep cheering for me. So I continued to eat them, thinking maybe it will just numb out. And that did not happen. Okay? No amount of milk, no amount of water. I remember going to the bathroom in that restaurant and thinking, Oh Lord, if I could pull my stomach out of my uh, insides and drop it in the toilet, that's what I would like to do. It was one of the worst mistakes I had ever done. What was I thinking in doing that? Well, I got some high fives. <laughs> Have you ever found yourself doing something that's unthinkable? So you could get a few high fives? <laughs> I tell you what, a little hot wing regret is nothing compared to putting an innocent man to death. A little hot wing regret, one night, Pilate said to them, what shall I do with this Jesus who's called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. You know, he wanted their applause so much that he committed the greatest injustice our world has ever seen. He so wanted them to high-five him, to go along with what they were saying, that the very system in place to enact justice resulted in the greatest injustice our world has ever seen. I'm glad we have the rest of the story. And if you plan to be with us throughout this week as we worship, I hope you will. You'll hear it. But if you don't, let me spoil it for you. Jesus takes that injustice on himself willingly, takes it and steps into it and bears the cross that was made and prepared for another criminal. And not just another criminal. He takes on that injustice and bears the burden for all. He flips the entire script. And by taking on what is the most unjust act you could ever imagine, he brings about the best form of justice that we could ever hope for. The irony is that in our passage, the crowd, as Pilate tries to get out of it, says, we'll accept his blood guilt on us. And they say in verse 25, his blood be on us and our children. You remember earlier when we were talking about the Passover lamb. And we were talking about Jesus being selected. And they didn't necessarily know, but boy, that was prophetic. You remember that? Jesus' blood doesn't just sit on a door frame above the house. Jesus' blood comes on us and purifies us. And instead of having his blood come on us and bring guilt, his blood comes on us and frees us 
from guilt. I'll tell you what, the declaration of that pe- those people on that day in verse 25, they're accepting guilt, but what they don't even realize in that moment is that ultimately what's going to happen is they will, they will absolutely need the blood of Jesus to be on them and on their children. And wouldn't it be incredible if the same, some of those same people in that crowd that day, we don't know who they were, but wouldn't it be cool if the same people happened to be in the crowd in Acts chapter 2 when Peter comes and the whole story is finished and Jesus is rose from the dead and Peter preaches to them and says, this Jesus whom you crucified, he is now risen Lord and Savior. And they were pierced to the heart. Oh, it'd be so cool if those same people who made that one proclamation did the other. I hope that they did. I hope that they did. But that's just speculation. But here's what we know. We have a choice. We have a choice. What will we do with this man, Jesus? You see, he bore the weight of our sin and took our place on a cross. And it, it's interesting to know that he didn't just take Barabbas' cross. He did literally take Barabbas' cross. But that name, Barabbas, it means son of the father. That's what his name means, son of the father. And Really, we could be Barabbas. I'm a son of the Father. It could be any of us. We could be Barabbas. And the, the reality of what Jesus did is that He got on a cross that belonged to us. We deserve that cross. We are the ones who are guilty. And Jesus was not, but He took on our guilt and Barabbas' guilt and the whole world. He took it on Himself so that we could actually let God's justice fall on Jesus Christ and that we might be made right. And what happened in that moment is the greatest act of justice as Jesus flips the script and says the greatest act of justice is bringing people into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. That when we restore a relationship with God, we are participating in the greatest act of justice. And that's why we love to say that helping people find and follow Jesus here is the greatest form of justice that you could ever participate in. Because we have this understanding that there is a greater justice that comes. This is not just something where we look and we say, oh, the world's messed up. Oh, it hurts. And we see injustice. And like our tendency when we see injustice is to hold up a sign and to point and say, I hope somebody else does something about that right we'll post on social media we'll get a t-shirt but it's not really natural for us to step in and do something about it that's not really natural we like to just kind of proclaim some stuff we don't necessarily want to take that on ourselves we like to hold the sign but what jesus did as he defied injustice himself is he took it on himself he bore the weight of that not because he thought wow earth is going to be all okay right now but because he knew of something better to come that when when we participate in this and we step into injustice, it's not because we believe we'll for, we're going to forever wipe away the problem with our social media post. We won't. We can make a difference, yes, but that difference that we make is empty if we don't do that difference with a gospel mindset. It will never actually lead to justice in what Jesus did. Is that very thing. Jesus had mission when he stepped into injustice. He didn't heal sick because he thought all sickness will be away from the earth. He healed the sick because when he healed the sick, he was pointing to something greater. He was pointing to a greater reality. And when you and I take part in defying injustice and we step in and we bear that on ourselves, what we are doing is we are pointing to a greater reality that is way beyond any utopian society that we may think we can create on earth. We are pointing to a utopian society, to a utopian creation of heaven that Jesus has already brought for us and pointed to. And so when we take that on ourselves, when we step in, 
what we have the opportunity to do is proclaim the gospel and proclaim something that is great. We know justice because we know God. We know it is right because we know God. And we can point to that all day long. We can point to that. We can provide hope by stepping in and taking up our cross. Just like Jesus took up the cross. We can step in and take up a cross and we can bear the responsibility of bringing people into a right relationship with God. So we want to be a church and a people that helps people find and follow Jesus because we believe when we do that we will be pointing to the great judge who will bring right justice and we can trust in him to do that because we saw it in his son and we saw what he did in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are often so afraid of stepping into injustice because we want people to like us. We're not too unlike Pilate in that way. We want people to approve of what we do and sometimes stepping out and making a declaration is not very popular. Sometimes we keep quiet when we should speak up. And sometimes we run away because we're too scared. We're too scared of the cost. So we pray today that you would give us courage to be like Jesus, to step into injustice in a way that is meaningful because it is rooted in the gospel. So God, plant the gospel deeply within our hearts today so that we may live and operate with that mission in mind and participate with Christ. We thank you so much for Jesus and for your word. We pray through Christ. Amen. That great injustice against Jesus brought, bought for us something that we could not buy for ourselves, but forgiveness and grace. It exchanged the guilt that belonged to us and was transferred onto Jesus so that we could be guiltless. And if you've never accepted the blood of Jesus for you, and you sit with guilt on you, then today needs to be the day that you accept Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. And you say, I need the blood of Jesus on me so that I can be forgiven and made right with God. If that is you today, then we want to invite you to come forward. Uh, you can come forward uh, and, and talk, and you could write this on your response card, but we know that you need to take that first step today. And so we want to invite you to do that. And you can even make that first move in just a moment. We're going to sing a song here in just a moment. You can make that first move. You can meet with these friends who just walked in up here at the front. You can pray with them. We'd love to start that conversation with you. Would you come as we stand together and sing?